Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. I have a new microphone, and that means that you don't have to hear me complain, and I can put some inflection in my voice without worrying about peaking my audio. So this is a bonus for both of us. Before we get into the narrative today, I want to talk about some changes I've made to the podcast schedule. As you know, if you listen to the intro episode, this is season one of the show. And season one is specifically about countries that were founded and fell within a single calendar year. My original list totaled to 133 countries for this season, and that's great and all, but it means that one season would have been 133 episodes and it wouldn't have ended until October of 2025. So I've culled the list down quite a bit. I want to make sure that the season is enjoyable to listen to and not extremely repetitive, and the reality is that it would be very repetitive if I covered every country in my original list. For instance, there are dozens of countries that existed solely during the Russian Revolution, There are dozens more that existed in the political chaos following World War I, and there are even more Axis puppet states during World War II. I've already covered a number of states from all of these categories, so I'm going to stop doing that. From now on, I'm only going to cover states that are genuinely interesting and won't be a repeat of the same story over and over again. After all, you can only hear an episode begin with, So, it was the Russian Revolution so many times before you go crazy. I may still cover one or two states from World War I, the Russian Revolution, or World War II if I find them particularly interesting, but I'm going to avoid them otherwise. So now, instead of 133 episodes, season one of the show should total to 38 episodes, which I think is much more reasonable. Of course, that does mean there are 95 countries on that list that I won't cover, And this being a show about forgotten countries, it would be unfair to just ignore them. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Patrons at the second tier of my Patreon have voting rights as to the next country that I cover there. So I'll be adding an option on the weekly poll that just says Forgotten Land. If that option wins out for the week, the next episode of my bonus Patreon-exclusive weekly series will be one of the 95 countries that I've knocked off the main list. So, if you want to support the show and gain some exclusive Forgotten Lands content, feel free to check me out over on Patreon at patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands. So, today, as you can tell by the title of the episode, we're talking about the Paris Commune. The year was 1870, and the French Empire under Napoleon III was at war with the Prussians, who were a German predecessor state. This Napoleon, by the way, was the Big One's nephew, not Napoleon himself. It's not important to know how the war started, but what you do need to know is that on September 2nd, 1870, Napoleon III was captured by the Prussians and forced to abdicate his throne. Having your emperor captured on the field of battle is obviously very bad PR for any imperial system, so Republicans within Paris took advantage of the situation 
and proclaimed the Third French Republic within two days. The Republic inherited a very bad situation. The Franco-Prussian War was still raging out in the countryside, and the Prussian army was headed straight for Paris. This march across the country was sending thousands of French people fleeing from the countryside and into the capital, which put a huge strain on the infrastructure of the city. By September 19th, just over two weeks after the declaration of the Republic, the Prussian army was besieging Paris. As a result, the middle and upper class citizens of the city fled en masse, leaving the lower classes and laborers to pretty much fend for themselves. There were 50,000 professional soldiers guarding Paris as well, which sounds like a lot, but their numbers were dwarfed by the 240,000 Prussians surrounding the city. Radicals within Paris could see that the national government was in a very tight spot, so they pounced. National guardsmen from the working-class districts of the city defected and marched to the center of town, where they demanded the Republican government be dissolved and a commune set up in its place, which would serve the interests of the working class. The national government broke off a section of their regulars from the defense of the city and confronted the rebels, dispersing them without a fight. After that, things were quiet for a time. You know, other than the quarter million Germans outside the walls of Paris. But this was Paris, and everyone knows that Paris can't stay quiet for too long. On October 5th, 5,000 protesters marched on City Hall and demanded rifles and new elections. Three days after that, those same National Guard soldiers defected again, once again looking to set up a commune, but these mini-rebellions were peacefully broken up. From here, the siege continued, and the national government continued to fail to stop it. Then, a turning point came. It was a dark and stormy night on Halloween of 1870, when 15,000 lightly armed protesters gathered outside of City Hall and demanded a commune yet again. This wasn't unlike the previous uprisings at first, but things took a turn when shots were fired from City Hall. This protest was eventually broken up peacefully, but things had changed now. Shots had been fired between French citizens, and things were only going to get worse from here. Three days later, a local election took place in Paris, and one quarter of the city's neighborhoods elected radical candidates. Meanwhile, the national government continued to try to break the siege, but they had little luck. They refused the Prussians' demands and tried instead to force their way out of the city, which ended in predictable disaster. But there was worse to come. Winter was setting in, and it was getting cold. I don't know which went first, but firewood and food soon disappeared from the city. The hunger and the cold set in, and the Parisians were forced to eat pets, zoo animals, pack animals, and eventually vermin, like mice and rats. But here's the thing about winter. Winter doesn't just affect cities. The Germans out in the countryside surrounding Paris were cold and hungry too, and this siege had already gone on for too long. Tired of this never-ending battle, Otto von Bismarck, a German leader, set up artillery all around the walls of the city, and on January 5th, 1871, he ordered the barrage to start. 
More than 300 artillery shells rained down on the city every day. The people got fed up with this situation fast, so on January 22nd, 400 rebellious National Guardsmen rallied at City Hall once again, and once again demanded a commune. No one knows who fired first, but gunfire did break out between the rebels and the guards within City Hall, which ultimately resulted in the deaths of six rebels. The army chased them off from there. Four days later, on January 26th, the French city of Bordeaux went and signed peace with the Germans on behalf of all France, which functionally ended the Franco-Prussian War and the Siege of Paris. Now that the siege was over, things could go back to normal in Paris. But as we know, normal in Paris basically just means even more civil strife. You see, Paris had just been under siege, and that meant there were plenty of guns around the city that suddenly had no immediate use. The radical elements of the National Guard demanded that 400 of those cannons be placed in lower-class districts in order to ensure that the national government minded its own business. Of course, the national government was not about to give angry rebels 400 artillery guns, so they staunchly refused. The rebels saw this as an effort on behalf of the national government to suppress the voice of the people, and things kept heating up from there. On March 18th, Adolphe Thiers, the president of France, ordered the National Army to storm Paris and take the cannons by force. There was a brief skirmish on the hill of Montmartre, in the northern end of the city, where one rebellious National Guardsman was killed. Many non-military civilians took part in the effort to prevent the National Government from capturing the guns, including Georges Clemenceau, who would eventually be Prime Minister of France during the last years of World War I, though he was currently mayor of Montmartre, which is why he showed up that day. The crowd slowly surrounded the soldiers, and as they did, men began to defect more and more. Seeing the dire situation he was in, the accompanying General Lecomte ordered his men to fire on the crowds, but they refused three times in a row. Thus, Lecomte was forced to surrender, and he and his officers were taken prisoner by the mob, who openly called out for them to be executed. That afternoon, the crowds dragged Lecomte and other officers into the streets, where they began to beat them and pepper them with bullets. No guillotines were needed, apparently. At this, Thiers ordered all government troops and departments to evacuate Paris and head for Versailles, where he had set up an interim capital. As the national government left the city, the radicals quickly took over all of Paris, making March 18, 1871, the birthday of the Paris Commune. The next day, they raised a red flag over the Capitol building. The most extreme elements within the communards, uh, communists did not yet exist at this point in history, wanted to attack Versailles immediately so that they could defeat Thiers' government in a single triumphant victory. But many knew this to be a bad idea. The national government's forces may have been sparse, tired, and demoralized at the moment, but there were many tens of thousands of prisoners of war from the Franco-Prussian War on the way to rejoin the government in Versailles. 
even if the communards somehow defeated the Republican government before the bulk of the freed soldiers arrived, they would still have to face them and would surely not fare well. Besides, the Central Committee, which was the governing body of the commune, wanted to actually establish a government in the only city that they owned, which was probably a good idea. They even sent a delegation, which included Clemenceau, to Versailles in order to try to attain independence for Paris. Obviously, the national government refused, and as a reward for leading this failed mission, the Central Committee declared that Clemenceau and all other Parisian mayors elected under the Republican system were no longer in power. A round of elections followed, which formalized the commune's government, and things were starting to look up for the communards. But here's the thing. It was called the Paris Commune. Literally, the entirety of the rest of the country stood against them. Paris was a fortress in and of itself, for sure, but few can withstand pressure like that, and Thiers was about to increase the pressure. Skirmishing broke out between the national government and the communards on the outskirts of Paris on March 30th, just 12 days after the commune's inception. On April 2nd, the commune went on the offensive, but were quickly turned back by the regulars waiting for them outside of the city. In this skirmish, 12 communards were killed, while only one Republican fell, and he was a doctor, not even a soldier. Even though men had now died, the legend of Montmartre persisted, and many communards believed that the soldiers of the national government would refuse to fire upon them. So they tried again on April 3rd, the very next day. On that day, 27,000 infantrymen advanced towards Versailles with nothing but the weapons in their hands and a good attitude. And that really is all they had, by the way. 27,000 infantrymen. No cavalry, no artillery, not even a baggage train with food and ammunition for the men. As they passed friendly forts outside of the city, they quickly discovered them to be actually quite unfriendly, as bullets and shells rained down upon them, sending the rebel army fleeing back towards Paris. Any communards captured by the national government were shot on sight. Upon hearing this, the commune announced that for every prisoner of war the Republicans executed, they in turn would execute three Republicans. This actually worked and scared the national government into using a trial system instead of summary executions, but not before the communards had already executed more than 100 Republicans found within Paris. By early April, it was clear that the national government was planning to attack Paris soon. As troops approached under the command of General Patrice de McMahon, the Central Committee panicked and began to deviate from their social democracy ideals. They formed a Council of Public Safety, which existed with the sole purpose of hunting down enemies of the commune within Paris, in order to prevent any aid to the national government from within the city walls. The arrests started with known anti-communards, but eventually spread to people who had simply criticized the political actions of the commune. Meanwhile, the national army had been stopped by Fort Issy, which blocked the main road into Paris. They bombarded the fort for three full days before the communard garrison there finally surrendered, 
and was allowed to return to Paris unharmed. However, their slow withdrawal from the fort was interrupted on April 30th, when reinforcements arrived from the commune and demanded the men return to their post. Reoccupying the fort before any national troops could get in, the communard forces held out for over a week, until they were ultimately done in by the constant shelling they were suffering, and surrendered the fort for the second and final time on May 8th. Now that McMahon held Issy, the route to Paris was wide open. By May 19th, he had already breached the outermost defenses of the city, and two days later, a Republican agent within the walls informed McMahon that the southwestern defenses of the city proper had been abandoned, so the commander used this information to send 50,000 men through the gates totally unscathed. This was a far larger army than anything the commune could realistically muster, and when the Central Committee received news that McMahon's army was inside the walls of the city four hours after the fact, they didn't believe it, so they failed to warn anyone in Paris about the imminent danger. By the time the alarms finally sounded on May 22nd, only about 20,000 men, women, and children responded to defend the city. Unfortunately for the communards, their citizens defended themselves not as Parisians, but as members of their own local neighborhoods, meaning that the divide part of divide and conquer was already done for McMahon by the time the street fighting began. And even more unfortunately for the commune, McMahon's army was made up of French veteran soldiers, meaning that street fighting in Paris was hardly anything new to them. They knew the city, and they knew the tactics that the Parisians would use in defense of their neighborhoods. Rather than combat in the open streets, the regulars snuck around inside buildings, appearing in windows and firing down on communard barricades from above. The next day, May 23rd, was a very symbolic day. On that day, McMahon decided to aim to capture Montmartre, where the rebellion had begun, when the communards refused to give up their guns to Lecomte. The cannons were still there, which would have posed a serious threat to the Republican forces if the communards had actually had any ammunition for them, but they didn't. By midday, Montmartre fell to the national government, and the rebel prisoners captured there were dragged to the palace where General Lecomte had been shot, and they too were executed. Mass executions of rebels carried on throughout the day, including a single instance in which more than 300 men were killed on the spot after being captured. Seeing that the rebellion was failing, communards around the city turned to spite and began burning buildings associated with both republicanism and monarchism, which included the 300-year-old Tuileries Palace, which had been home to pretty much every French monarch since good King Henry back in the 16th century. By the next morning, all communications within the commune had completely broken down, and those communards that had not fled the city were left to fend for themselves. At this point, the only thing the communards could really do was hinder McMahon as much as possible, and they knew the best way to do that was to start summarily executing his men just like he had been doing to their own men. 
Bitter and spiteful street fighting and summary executions continued for a few more days, until May 28th, when the last remaining communard barricades fell to the army and the Paris Commune was officially extinguished. So this was quite the story, if you ask me, and that begs the question, why was the Paris Commune forgotten? Well, actually, the short answer is that not everyone forgot it. Frederick Engels, the co-author of the Communist Manifesto, and a man who was at least alive at the time of these events, later applauded the Paris Commune as one of the earliest examples of the fabled dictatorship of the proletariat. However, everyone else does seem to have forgotten about it, and here's why I think that's the case. For some reason, the history of France is often taught something like this. Rome owned it, then Charlemagne appeared and the Middle Ages ensued, but Napoleon changed all of that, and then World War I and World War II happened, and now it's today. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that many of you didn't know that there was a Napoleon II or a Napoleon III, who our story opened with today. French history between Napoleon and World War I is pretty much ignored, at least in schools here in America, so it's no wonder that two months of rebellion gets looked over when entire kingdoms, empires, dynasties, and wars have suffered the same fate. So that's all I've got for you today. Uh, if you liked the audio or you hated the audio with the new microphone, feel free to let me know over on Twitter or Instagram. I am at Forgot10Lands on both. That's the number 10. And if you want to hear a little bit more from me, patreon.com slash historyofforgottenlands is where I'll be uploading two episodes today, one about the birth of Australia and the other about the birth of Austria. And if not, thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again next week.